Well, do you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter number 24? You should be there by now. You've got a Bible marker in Acts chapter number 1. Why don't we jump right in? Over the last couple of weeks, you will remember as we've come through Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, uh, you will remember that we have uh, been rightly considering uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and then, of course, last Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. The word of celebration or really the phrase of celebration last Sunday morning and really every Sunday morning when we gather, uh, was the testimony of the angel that, was, uh, that spoke to the women who arrived at the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. When he said these words, these words that all of us love and we celebrate them and we, and we claim them as our hope of eternal life, he said, I know that you seek Jesus which was crucified. Here are the words. He is not here. He is risen. He is not here. He is not here in the tomb. And we celebrated that with great joy last week. We had some decisions made for Christ, people who came to know Jesus, and it was a great, great joy. But it begs a question, doesn't it? If he is not here in the tomb, then where is Jesus? Do you ever think about that? Where is Jesus? If he's not in the tomb, where did he go after the resurrection? Another way to ask it would be, where is Jesus today? Where is Jesus right now? Well, to answer the question, simply uh, all you must do is work through the timeline of events that occurred following uh, his, his ministry. You know, his passion, Jesus was crucified on a Good Friday morning. He died by noon on that Friday. He was buried on Friday afternoon or entombed on Friday afternoon. On Sunday morning, of course, Jesus came forth out of that grave in that glorious resurrection. And then the Bible tells us that following his resurrection for 40 days, Jesus appeared to many of his disciples. In fact, Paul tells us in one place that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. You have the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, and then if we could consider as one event the appearances of Jesus. And then following those 40 days of appearances, you have this fact of scripture that Jesus ascended back to heaven. The ascension of Jesus Christ is an often overlooked reality in New Testament history, and it should not be overlooked. Today, we are going to learn the significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And this is the reason that I've asked you to turn to Luke chapter number 24 and Acts chapter number 1. You know, an interesting fact of of, uh, the New Testament is that only Luke records the actual event of the ascension. Now, it's mentioned in a number of places in the New Testament, and Mark affirms that Jesus ascended. Uh, John even alludes to the ascension of Jesus, and, and Paul, certainly in his writings, speaks often Uh, about the ascension of Jesus. But only Luke, as one of the four evangelists, one of the four gospel writers, describes what that ascension was like. 
And so Luke, who is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, tells us about the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He begins with his, um, the announcement of his birth and then his conception and, and uh, his birth in Bethlehem. So Luke begins with the birth of Jesus in the Gospel and he ends with the ascension of Jesus. And then in the book of Acts, Luke picks up from the ascension of Jesus and then goes on to tell us about the work of Jesus through the Acts of the Apostles. But I want you to look with me in Luke chapter number 24 and verse 50, where Luke is going to describe to us what this ascension looked like. Are you there? Luke chapter 24 and verse number 50. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, and he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came to pass that while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Standing at Bethany, arms raised and blessing them, while he is blessing them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Verse 52 says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. All right, so Luke says that Jesus was carried up into heaven. Now, go over to Acts chapter 1 where you have been uh, holding your place. Look in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. So the Gospel of Luke ends with the ascension. The book of Acts, Luke's second uh, piece, uh, begins with the ascension. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke writes, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus. Now, by the way, Theophilus is the recipient of both the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. Both of these were written to a Gentile man, likely a high-ranking Roman official. In the Gospel of Luke, he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus. Uh, he says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, referring to the Gospel of Luke, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but that they should wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. And when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now this was their expectation. Right? They had expected him as the Messiah to restore the kingdom earlier, and then he died. And now that he's risen, it is their natural expectation that now will be the time. Now as the crucified and risen Messiah, surely now he will institute the kingdom. So they said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But you shall receive power. 
the, the uh, sovereign rule of God over the seasons of time and the unfolding of human history, that's in God's power. But here's the power that God is giving to us. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, now they're watching, they're listening, they're leaning in, he's talking, he's blessing, he's instructing. And now as they are watching, he begins to be taken up. Now, I know that many of you are note takers and you have a pen there. You've you've got a notepad. So in your Bible, I want you to circle the words, if you will, taken up in verse 9. He was taken up. And by the way, while you're circling, go all the way back over to verse number 2. You'll see those same two words, taken up, until the day in which he was taken up. Circle it there as well. Verse 2, verse 9, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. Verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. We know these are angels. Which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is, do you see these two words? Taken up. There they are again. Would you circle them? Three times now in these verses you've seen these words, Jesus was taken up. Circle it. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Well, then verse 12 says, They returned unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, uh, which is from Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey. All right, now let's walk through this a little bit. We're talking about the ascension of Jesus. Go all the way back to Acts chapter 1 and verse number 3 and you'll notice, and I mentioned this a moment ago, that Jesus ascended back to heaven after he had been raised from the dead for 40 days. You see in verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, after his crucifixion, he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs being seen of them, of his disciples, for 40 days. For 40 days, he showed himself to be alive. And the purpose of his remaining with them for these 40 days and appearing multiple times to multiple groups was to do two things. Number one, as verse 3 says, he, he appeared to them over these 40 days to prove, to give infallible proof, undeniable proof, that he had, in fact, risen from the dead. It wasn't only the testimony of Mary Magdalene from Sunday morning. It wasn't only these five women who came to the tomb that morning and said, oh, it was, the tomb was empty and he was uh, risen. It wasn't only the 11 disciples who told the story that he had risen. No, he showed himself over and over and over again to many people. As I mentioned, more than 500 at one time. So this is this undeniable proof, these these infallible proofs, as verse 3 says, that Jesus Christ is alive. That's what he was doing for 40 days. And he was also, according to verse number 3, instructing his disciples. He was teaching them. You see it in verse number 3, by many infallible proofs, proving himself to be alive, being seen of them 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
He's speaking to them, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now, here's the fact. Jesus is a king, as we'll see. And this was their expectation when they asked him, will you restore, verse 9, will you restore at this time the kingdom to Israel? Will you be our king now? He's instructing them about the kingdom. We're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is the king. You know, if you're part of Brookstone on a regular basis, you know that our vision statement speaks to this authority, this dominion of Jesus. Uh, Years ago, we crafted a vision statement which says, we believe that Jesus came to build a church that would overpower the forces of hell and enlarge the kingdom of God. And we envision being that church. There is a kingdom over which Christ reigns. We're going to talk about that today. So he, he rose from the dead for 40 days. He proved himself to be alive. He taught about the kingdom of God. And then on that 40th day, he then ascended back to the Father. Now, just before ascending back to heaven, verse number 8 tells us that he commanded the disciples that they were to stay focused. Hey, can I ask you, do you ever lose your focus? We do, don't we? It's so easy for us to lose focus, to let uh, the, the minor things become the main things, to let the little things become the big things, to get all focused on things that in eternity won't matter. And, and Jesus commanded his disciples in Acts 1-8 to remain focused to let the main thing be the main thing. They started asking questions. You're going to restore the kingdom. Is now the time? Are we going to get to live in the kingdom? And he says, it's not your issue. It's not what you ought to be worried about. That's God's prerogative. Here's what you should be worried about. Here's what you should be focused on. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And you, in that power of the Holy Spirit, are to be a witness for me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Man, we need that, don't we? We need that command, that reminder to let the main thing be the main thing. That We are to be a witness for Jesus while we're here. Well, after 40 days, he said to them, this is the main initiative that you are to be engaged in. And then he ascended. Well, where did he ascend from? Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, the Bible tells us. Verse number 12, then they returned unto Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is from Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey, really just steps away um, there on the Mount of Olives. Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. Let me go back to Luke chapter number 24. I'll remind you what verse 50 says, Luke 24, 50. And he led them out as far as to Bethany. So Luke tells us that they were at Bethany, in the village of Bethany, where Jesus blessed them and then ascended. Uh, He then tells us in Acts that he was on the Mount of Olives. Well, the village of Bethany is in fact on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And so Luke affirms in both Acts and in the Gospel of Luke that they are standing on the Mount of Olives when Jesus Ascended. You know, many of you know we travel to Israel uh, frequently and take groups and lead Bible studies there. And we love to end our tours. We don't always have time to do it, but when we can, we love to finish the tour 
on the Mount of Olives. And we read this passage in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus ascends and says, now go get to work and be a witness for me. It's a great way to end 10 days in the Holy Land uh, and head to the airport with this commission, uh, go in the power of the Holy Spirit and be my witnesses. After 40 days, showing himself, speaking and teaching about the kingdom of God, they, were, they convened on the Mount of Olives in the village of Bethany, and Jesus ascended to heaven. Now the Bible tells us what that ascension looked like. Luke chapter 24 says he was parted for, from them as he was carried up into heaven. And Acts chapter 1, as I've already had you uh, note by circling this, three different times in verse 2, verse 9, and verse 11, three different times Acts tells us that he was taken up into heaven. In fact, look at how this is worded in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, where it says, And when he had spoken these things, while they were watching, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, the, the, the implication is pretty clear here that Jesus is taken up until he can no longer be seen. They are watching until he is no longer visible because the clouds literally begin to obstruct their view of him. Mark chapter 16, don't turn, we'll go there in a few minutes. But Mark chapter number 16 tells us that he was received into heaven and Acts chapter 1 verse 10 says that while he is being taken up, they are standing with their eyes upward. They are gazing into heaven. Look at it. Chapter 1 verse 10. While they look steadfastly. They don't even see anything else going on. As you can imagine, you wouldn't either. They don't even see anything else going on. Their eyes are locked on Jesus as he's rising up through the sky. Uh, verse 11 says that they were gazing up into heaven. Now, when you put all of that together, it implies, and I don't know for certain that this is the way the ascension occurred, but, but the passage implies that this ascension of Jesus is not a rapture-like event where Jesus is whisked away suddenly, you know, where he's talking to them, he's blessing them, he's giving them these commands, and then suddenly he's gone. What the text rather implies is that his ascension was a slow ascension. Uh, an ascension that could be observed from the time that his feet were on the ground and as they slowly lifted and, and their eyes went with him, watching, 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 watching until he could no longer be seen. I mean, you can almost see it, can't you? I mean, you, you can almost put yourself there on the Mount of Olives. You can almost feel yourself standing shoulder to shoulder with these disciples. Maybe, we don't know what all uh, disciples were there. Maybe, maybe just the 11. But I don't think so. There, there could have been dozens of them there. There might have been a hundred or more of them there that Jesus had been speaking to. But there you stand in the midst of them and you're watching, watching, watching. And you can just sense what it must have been like to watch Jesus ascend. And this is almost always our perspective, our point of view as we think about the ascension. We stand on earth and we watch Jesus rise. I want you to change your point of view today. Can you do it? I want you to change your point of view. And rather than standing on the earth watching him rise in the text, I want you to take your place in heaven. And I want you to watch him rising from the earth to the heavens. 
In fact, this is a really biblical thing for us to do. I think it's a good perspective for us to take. Because, you know, we think of Jesus leaving when we think about the ascension. But from heaven's perspective, it was a totally different perspective because they see his ascension not as Jesus leaving, but as Jesus returning. I mean, think about it. When you read the gospel of Luke, when you read the gospel of Mark, when you read uh, the Acts of the Apostles, these words taken up, we circled it three times in Acts 1, he was taken up. When Mark says he was received up into heaven, the word literally means to bring back. We see it as a sending away or a going away. From heaven's perspective, it is a bringing back. Taken up or received up or received into means to be brought back and to welcome in or to welcome home with honor and with great joy. Now listen, listen, imagine the celebration. Can you imagine the the songs, the shouts of praise, the trumpet blasts? Can you imagine the the peals of thunder and the the flashes of lightning and and the innumerable angelic choir, the bowing seraphim as Jesus ascends and returns into heaven. The Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, having departed 33 years ago from heaven, now returns. But he returns as the God-man. He returns as this God who had become incarnate and now he returns Wounded from his battle, scarred from his sacrifice, but risen and victorious to shouts that the king has come home. He enters back into heaven. I can imagine heaven might have erupted, though the hymn wasn't written until the 19th century. Heaven must have erupted with some hymn-like version of crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Imagine what it must have been like that day for all of heaven when the God-man ascended and was received, welcomed into heaven. How the angels must have wondered when he had left, when he had departed, when he laid aside his glory and robed himself in the form of an embryo in the womb of a virgin. How, How the heavens must have been perplexed at the, at the plan and the wisdom of Almighty God that the Son would lay aside that glory and be born from the courts of heaven into a stable in rural, tiny, backwater Bethlehem. How they must have been astonished when they watched this creator who had flung the stars and the solar systems into existence and who had made all things with his powerful hand, whose hand could span all of creation with that mighty hand as they watched those hands now calloused, carrying lumber and and chiseling rock and working as as a rock carpenter, a tecton. How they must have wondered 
when they saw the energy of all eternity, the tireless, powerful, omnipotent God sweating under the labor. They must have seen him hungry when he fasted and even bleeding in Gethsemane. You can imagine how the angels must have wondered and been horrified when they saw him being rejected and mocked and murdered. And now, 40 days after his resurrection, they have the glorious privilege of attending the return of Jesus Christ, now the God-man, into the courts of heaven. On this day, he came home. What an incredible moment that must have been in heaven. And I want you to notice, I'm going to read to you. You can turn if you'd like. But I want to read to you how Mark uh, talks about the ascension. Only one verse in Mark chapter number 16. He tells us about the ascension. And then he tells us one nuanced detail, but incredibly important, that Luke doesn't mention. Listen to Mark chapter 16, verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them at Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he was received up into heaven. We know that. We've read that in Luke and Acts. Listen to what Mark tells us, verse 19. He was received up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Notice that phrase. He sat down at the right hand of God. I asked the question as I was beginning, if he is not here, where is he? If he's not in the tomb, if he's not still among us physically walking, where is Jesus today? Mark gives us the answer. He is seated upon his throne at the right hand of Almighty God. And this is what I want us to think about today. Write this down if you're a note taker. We should recognize that Christ reigns... And he reigns over the earth from heaven. Christ reigns over the earth from heaven. I want to talk about this for just a minute. You know that statement that I read to you out of Mark chapter 16 that says that he is seated at the right hand of God. That emphatic declaration that Jesus is enthroned as a king in heaven is repeated in the New Testament at least eight times different times. Let me remind you of a few examples. Do you remember Colossians chapter number one, where Paul challenges us? If then, if then you have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He tells us where our hearts should seek. It should seek to the right hand of God, to the very throne of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 12, the writer of Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, says, This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for all sin forever, he sat down, where? At the right hand of God. And Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that we should look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. At least eight times, the Bible tells us that Jesus is enthroned 
in heaven, that he is seated at the right hand of God. And I want you to listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, because in this passage, Peter tells us the implications of his being enthroned in heaven. And remember, eight times this very declaration is made, he's seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? What are the implications of that? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. It says, speaking of Jesus Christ, he has gone into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. And as a result of his ascension and being seated at the right hand of God, listen to what Peter says, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject unto him. Can I read it again? Are you listening? Because he has ascended and he has taken his seat upon the throne in heaven at the right hand of God, Peter says, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject unto him. What Peter tells us is that every authority, every power, every ruler in heaven, in hell, and on the earth has been made subject to, they all are under the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. Hear me, loved ones, Jesus is a king, but he's not simply a king of a tiny little empire somewhere in the backwoods of some some part of the world. He is the king of all eternity, and he reigns over heaven, he reigns over the powers of hell, and he reigns over every authority on the earth. Can I just simply say it to you? Christ is our king, and we are to submit to his king, uh, kingship. He rules over the earth from heaven. You know, the Bible prophesied, promised, as far back as the Psalms, that this would be the case. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand as I make your enemies your footstool. So the psalmist wrote, a thousand years before Jesus came, the psalmist wrote that one day God would say to the king, the Messiah, Sit here on my right hand. I will put all authority under you at your feet. They will become your footstool. Now, that was in Psalm 110. And yet, in Luke chapter 22, verse 43, Jesus took that statement out of Psalm 110 and he claimed it for himself. Jesus said that when the psalmist spoke those words, he was referring to me. So Jesus said, I am the king over all the earth. And by the way, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Because the Bible tells us, even in the beginning of Jesus' time on the earth, in the Annunciation, you'll remember from Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel, remember Luke 1, uh, in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent uh, to, a, to a village of, in Galilee to uh, Nazareth, where he went to Mary, and he said to her, Hail, thou art highly favored. And he told her that she would conceive a child and she would bear the Messiah. But you'll remember in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, in describing this child that Mary would bear, Gabriel said these words, He shall sit upon the throne of his father, David. And in saying so, Gabriel was making a messianic promise. Mary, you will give birth to the Messiah. 
you will give birth to the king. The child that you will bear will sit upon the throne of David. He will reign over the house of Israel. And that was their expectation. This is the reason the disciples asked about his kingdom. Will you establish the kingdom now? They thought that that would happen as he was preaching in the Galilee and gathering a following. He would establish a kingdom. But then he died. And when he died, they were devastated. They were so disappointed because he was the Messiah, right? And he was to bring a kingdom. In fact, do you remember the story of the Emmaus Road disciples following the death and resurrection of Jesus, those two disciples, Cleopas and another, were walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes and is walking along with them. And you remember this account, right? He says to them, what are you talking about? They say, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And then they said, and we thought, we're so disappointed. We're so let down because our expectation had been, we had thought that he was the one that would be the Messiah. And yet, he died. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? He called them fools. He said, you fools. You're so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he asked this question. Ought not Christ have suffered and then entered into his glory? So the angel Gabriel says to Mary, you're going to have the Messiah. The child that you will bear will sit upon the throne. He will be the king. He will be the fulfillment of Psalm 110. And then when he died, he then ascended and fulfilled that promise. In fact, can I read you one other verse? I know I'm all over the all over the New Testament today, but can I read to you Philippians chapter 2? This will make sense to you. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5. Listen to what Paul writes. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, that is to hang on to that uh, equality with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So there's the gospel story, right? He, he's God. He's the, God the Son. He becomes a man, lays aside his glory, enters into this world. The Messiah, the disciples expect a kingdom, then he dies. And and Paul writes, when he died, it was that death which ultimately qualified him as the Messiah. Verse number 9, wherefore, as a result of his humility and his death, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. This is what Jesus was saying to the Emmaus Road disciples. Christ must suffer and then enter into his glory. So here's the point. When Christ ascended back to the Father and took his seat upon the throne, he was receiving the kingdom. He was being given the kingdom that he had been promised, that the psalmist had prophesied about, that Gabriel had talked about, that Jesus had pointed to, and through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, now he takes his seat upon the throne. And he is the king. He is this king of kings and lord of lords. And so Jesus Christ is reigning over heaven. He is reigning from heaven, I should say, over all the earth. Now let me just say it to you this way. That Jesus reigns over all the earth 
from heaven now, but he reigns over a spiritual kingdom now as well. The kingdom of God invading and enlarging and spreading out as the gospel is proclaimed throughout the earth. One day Jesus will come and he will reign over a literal kingdom on the earth. And he will reign throughout all eternity as king of all kings and Lord of all lords. When we talk about the ascension of Jesus, we're talking about his receiving the kingdom, his becoming the king. Jesus reigns over the earth from heaven. Now there's a second aspect of this, and the time I've got remaining with you, there's a, there's a second aspect that I want to talk to you about, and it is to say that Christ reigns over the church from heaven. He doesn't just reign over all the earth. But he reigns over the church. And there's a lot that I could say to you about the lordship of Jesus over his church. Uh, but for the sake of time, there, there are two uh, emphasis, two aspects of his reigning over the church that I just want to mention to you that are directly connected to his ascension. In other words, two aspects of his reigning over the church that flow from the fact that he has ascended. Number one, write it down. I would say it this way, that he went up, he ascended or he went up so that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, might come down. We talk about Christ reigning over his church. He operates, he rules through his, in his church and he operates through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit would not have come had Jesus not ascended. Again, let me read to you. Uh, from the Gospel of John. Listen to John chapter number 16 and verse number uh, 7, if I can get there. John 16 and verse 7. Jesus says to his disciples on the night that he's to be arrested, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient. The word means it is profitable. It's better for you. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, then the Comforter will not come to you. Jesus went to heaven. He ascended so that by his ascension and being seated upon the throne, he would then send the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the promise of the Father. He went up so that the Holy Spirit would come down. And listen to me, there's a principle in that. There's a principle that we can learn to live by. And it's this, it is that when we exalt Jesus in our lives, when we exalt Jesus in our church, when among his people he ascends or he is exalted, then in that exaltation of Jesus, then the power of the Spirit is active. Sadly, in so many churches today, they are man-centered. It is all about man, where, where man is exalted. And when man is exalted, the Spirit of God does not work. But when we exalt Christ, when He ascends, then the Holy Spirit is active among us. I'm going to be talking about Pentecost next week, and we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. So I won't say much more about that now, but just know this. Christ went up so the Holy Spirit could come down. And when we exalt Christ, then the Holy Spirit is active among us. Now, the second thing I would say to you about Christ reigning over the church is simply to acknowledge that he ascended to heaven to become our great high priest. And I have to tell you, there's so much, there's so much to be said about this, and I'm well aware of, of my time here, but there's so much for us to 
praise God for when we think about the, the, the current ministry of the king, King Jesus, operating as the high priest uh, of the church. He has ascended to heaven in order to become our high priest. Did you know, by the way, that you have a high priest in Jesus? Uh, I'm going to read to you out of Acts, or I'm sorry, out of Romans chapter number 8. I want you to listen to verses 33 and 34. Acts 8, 33 asks this question, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is it that is going to condemn God's child? Listen to me. Can Satan condemn you? Can our own failings condemn us? Can our own guilt condemn us? Who is it? What is it? What demon in hell has the power to condemn a child of God? Paul asked that question. His answer is, no one. It is God who has justified us. Who is he that condemneth? Uh, Who could condemn us? Verse 34 says, it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who even is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Here's, Here's Paul's point in Romans 8. I'm uncondemnable. Do you get that? We are uncondemnable. It is impossible for guilt or shame or our own failings or the very demon hordes of hell, even Satan himself, to condemn us because Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And in that role as my king and my great high priest, he intercedes on my behalf because Christ has ascended. We have a representative, an advocate before the Father who is Ever there in his presence for us. Christ ascended that he might, that he might intercede, that he might advocate, that he might represent us before God Almighty, and therefore we are uncondemnable. Not only can we not be condemned because Christ has ascended to the right hand of God, but the Bible also promises us in the book of Hebrews that it is his ascension and his being seated at the right hand of God, which gives us access into the very presence of God. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14. Are you ready? Hebrews 4 and 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. There's the ascension. We have a great high priest. I don't just, listen, I don't just have a Savior who died for me 2,000 years ago. I don't even just have a Savior that died for me 2,000 years ago and then rose from the dead. I have a Savior who died for me, rose from the dead, and has entered into heaven for me. He has ascended, passed into the heavens for us, verse 14 says. Who is he? Jesus, the Son of God. And because Jesus has died and risen and ascended to the right hand of God, we can, verse 14, hold fast with confidence to our profession of faith. Oh, listen, sometimes if I let myself be the measure, if I let my own uh, life, my own habits, my own failings be the measure of whether or not I'm going to make it to heaven, I don't have much security But I have one who loved me and died for me, who was buried, who rose from the dead, who ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, and I hang on to him, right? 
I know I'm going to heaven because I hold fast to my profession of faith, not in Jim, but in Jesus. I hold on to him. Verse 15, I don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin, he knows he came and suffered. He suffered not only the cross, but he suffered temptation. He suffered in every point, even as we are. Yet he never sinned. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Loved ones, when we call out to God, when we run into the throne room of God and we cry out to Him, Oh God, I need your grace. Oh God, I need your, your help. Oh God, I need your, your strength in this temptation. Oh God, I need to be set free. Oh God, I need to get through this moment. We have uh, the access to obtain grace and find mercy only because seated at the right hand of God Almighty is Jesus, our high priest, who is there for us. I don't even have the right. I'm a lowly, broken sinner. I don't have the right to lift my eyes toward heaven and speak to God Almighty unless it's because Jesus is there as my high priest and my advocate. So let us hold fast to that profession because he is there on the right hand of God for us. In fact, one other passage out of Hebrews chapter number 6 and verse number 19 speaks of our hope. He said, we have a hope set before us. And he says, our hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Our hope has entered into the veil in heaven. And Christ, where the forerunner has entered in for us, even Jesus, who has made a high priest forever for us. And here's the fact. We live in a broken world. We're broken people. We are faltering people. We live in a world under, in these days, particularly great chaos and difficulty and distress. But we have a hope. Amen. We have a hope. Because Jesus died and Jesus rose and Jesus ascended and Jesus was seated at the right hand of God. And he rules there as king over all the earth and he rules over his church and he acts as the high priest of the church and allows us to run into that presence and find grace and mercy to help in the time of need. And we hold fast to that hope and that profession and we know that Christ has our hope. In a broken world, our hope is anchored in heaven. Why? Because Jesus ascended to the right hand of God Almighty. And there's one other thing, and I'm, I'm finished. And that is simply to say that Christ is one day returning to reign over his earthly kingdom. Can we, can we finish today back where we began in Acts chapter number 1? Can I remind you of Acts chapter 1 and verse number 11? Which says that after 40 days of showing himself alive, Jesus gathered his disciples on the Mount of Olives in the village of Bethany. He blessed them, instructed them, told them to keep the main thing, the main thing. And then he ascended up to be received in heaven with great glory and to take his seat upon the throne. And while those disciples stood looking up, wondering at the glory of this king who was ascending to them to the throne, amazed, mouths wide open, mouths agape at the wonder of this ascending king, two angels stood by them and said, what are you doing? Why are you standing around looking up into heaven? The king 
who is ascending is coming again. And he's coming, verse 11 says, in the same way which you have seen him go. How did he go? He went to heaven in the clouds. And how is he returning? He's coming from heaven to the earth in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us what it will be like. Christ himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. He is coming in the clouds. Matthew tells us that one day the eastern sky will roll back and Christ will come, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He is the king seated at the right hand of God, ruling over the earth, ruling over the church, and one day coming again. And I wonder, is Jesus your king? I hope he is. And I hope that if you know Jesus and he is your king, that you find in this day, in this day of chaos and distress, you find your hope anchored in heaven because Christ ascended there for you. But if you don't know him, if you've never surrendered to the authority, to the dominion of Jesus Christ, I hope you'll do that today. I read that passage in Philippians 2 a minute ago, which says because he descended and because he uh, lowered, uh, became a man, and because he died on the cross, that God exalted him and he gave him a name above every name. And he said, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. I want you to do that today. I want you to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Make Jesus your king and then spend eternity in his kingdom.